welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I am your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you have joined me yet again to talk about music and what makes it so great. I've been really happy with the reception that last episode uh, about Thriller got. It seemed like a whole lot of people really enjoyed that, um, and which was cool because I had a lot of fun making that episode, and it really it was cool going back and listening to that song and sort of picking out all of these things that I haven't heard before. So I'm glad that everybody enjoyed uh, listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. More people than ever are listening to this show now. More people come on board with every episode, which has been really nice to see. Thanks so much to everybody who has spread the word, told their friends about it. If you know anybody who you think might like it, tell them. I want millions of people to listen to this show and come and appreciate these strong songs with me each episode. We also went well past 100 ratings on the Apple Podcast app, which is wonderful. I believe I said last time that makes that makes Strong Songs a real podcast, so we are now a real podcast. Of course, that doesn't mean you shouldn't rate the show if you haven't already, because that helps people find it. I think that helps it be more visible, and uh, it's just generally nice to, to have a lot of ratings and reviews. So, you know, please leave a review if you haven't, if you have time, or at least go and give me some stars if you have time for that. On the last episode, I asked if listeners could send in their questions about specific things in songs, things they'd always wondered about, things they would like me to try to answer on the show. I was really happy with how many people wrote in. Uh, It was very cool. I got probably more questions than I could answer on the show. And I thought that this week uh, we would actually go ahead and do that. And so I'm doing a question and answer episode this week. This is the first time I've ever done one of these. Hopefully it'll be cool. It's a little bit of an experiment, but we'll see how it goes. So we'll get to that in one moment. Before we do, just a quick thought about music and the practice of music and having music be in your life. I have heard from a lot of people who have listened to this show and said, you know, that they maybe played an instrument back in high school, or they do play an instrument now, but they don't have a lot of time for it. Maybe they hadn't been making time to listen to music, and the show has been sort of reminding them of the joy of music and just how much you can get out of just sitting and listening to music. First of all, Every time somebody tells me that, it makes me happier than I can even say. It just means a lot because that's exactly what I want to do with this show, and it's very cool. And it also is really resonating with me on a personal level, too, and it's just something I wanted to really quickly share before we get into your questions and and my answers. So um, as some of you, probably a lot of you maybe know, at the end of the year, at the end of 2018, I quit my old job in media. I was writing, and um, I'm back to doing music full-time. I was a full-time musician before that job, and uh, then for eight years, I was writing about video games for the video game website. Kotaku, which was a super fun job. But I always kind of had this feeling of, I need to get back to music. I need to get back to music. And that feeling got louder and louder and louder over the last couple of years until it was clear, okay, I really got to do this. So um, that's what I've been doing. And for the first part of 2019, I have sort of returned to my musical practice, which means I spend every day pretty much just working on music. In the morning, I drink coffee and practice piano. Um, I'm getting my drum chops back in shape. I've been practicing, you know, all the other instruments that I play, getting my sax chops in particular working again. So it's It's been remarkable coming back to a really dedicated musical practice after so many years away. And it's made me reflect on you, the listener, on people that I've heard from, people who play instruments or maybe played an instrument. And I really, I just can't say enough how wonderful it's been to be playing music every day. Um, It's not even that I've been playing all day. It's just, you know, an hour at the piano in the morning each day. If that were all I was doing, it would still be so cool because there's this feeling of progression and of it's almost like a meditative experience. You just have to focus on it. You know, I turn on the metronome and I'm just practicing something. And sometimes what I'm practicing is hard, you know, and it's frustrating. And I get frustrated and I'm kind of yelling at myself, oh my gosh, dude, like just make your finger do the thing. And it can be very difficult to do. But in the end, it's so 
rewarding and it's been such a cool, you know, way to, in addition to doing this show and listening to music, it's been such a cool way to have music and the playing of music be part of my life. So I just wanted to say sort of as a challenge or just a, an idea for all of you listening who maybe play an instrument, maybe you don't play that much right now, maybe you played an instrument way back in the day when you were in high school in band or in a college marching band or something and you still have it tucked away somewhere but you don't really play it. Um, here is my idea for you and that is sometime this week or in the next two weeks, take your instrument out of its case, get your instrument out, sit down with it and play it. You know, get some batteries for your metronome, go back over the etudes that you used to do, just play it, make some sound on it and see if you can, you know, entertain the idea of returning to a regular musical practice just as part of your life. It doesn't have to be a huge thing you do, it doesn't have to be a massive commitment, just something that gets you kind of playing music again. Because for me at least, um, over the course of this January, it's been an incredibly just, it's been a lovely experience to, to be get back to playing music as much um, as I used to and to return that practice to my life. And I want that for as many of my listeners as possible. So if that sounds like something you might be into, um, maybe take this opportunity, take this as, as the challenge that you need uh, to go and, and get back to it. Okay, let's answer some of your questions. The first two questions that I will answer come from my former boss, Stephen, who gave them to me actually when he was saying you should do a question and answer episode. And I had already put, the, I already said them to everybody on the show when I was asking for questions. So I figure I can't say those questions and not answer them. So we will answer them. The first question is, is the drum solo on In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins good or is it just loud? That's a good question, Stephen. Let's listen to that drum solo and then I will try to come up with an answer to that. So my answer to Stephen's question is the drum solo on Phil Collins's In the Air Tonight is both good and loud. Possibly an unsatisfying answer to that question, but I can explain a little bit of what I'm talking about. I think that what makes that drum solo work is the volume and is the fact that it sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, on In the Air Tonight, which is a great song, the majority of the song is just this very, very quiet little uh, groove with electronic drums. Sounds sort of like this. It's a very sort of meditative, very ominous almost uh, groove, which makes sense because the song is building towards something. He can feel it coming, you know, and I think that that really comes across. I can feel it so the vocals are kind of lonely and floating on their own. And then when the drums do come in, that's sort of where the song kicks up in energy. So the fill, the drum fill itself, it just kind of goes down the toms. It's not like a really elaborate, you know, Terry Bozio drum fill with a million drum fills. You know, it's not Carter Beaufort shredding. But it is a good drums, drum fill in some ways because I think everyone knows it and people love to air drum along with it, which is actually usually the sign of something good. And also, I think it's just very effective for the thing that it does in the song. I, I'm always jarred by the drums in this song, and I don't like the groove that they find. Um, once he's just singing again and the drums are in, I just think it feels disjointed, but that is kind of on purpose, I think. I don't think it's supposed to be a settled groove. And I think that makes the song distinct and makes it, you know, what it is. Steven's next question, and yes, Steven gets two questions, because hey, look, he was my boss for a long time, and I like the guy, okay? He gets, he gets asked two questions. Uh, his second question is, why is the Star Spangled Banner considered so hard to sing? Now, when I mentioned this on the show, someone pointed out to me on Twitter that Vox has actually done a video explaining this as part of their uh, Earworm YouTube series, which is 
fantastic. Every one of Vox's music videos that I've seen, I haven't seen all of them, is really good. Actually, if you have Netflix, their show Explained, the finale of the first season was about music. Just wonderful. Totally recommend watching it. I have not actually watched the Vox Explainer for the answer to this question for why the Star Spangled Banner is hard to sing, so I'm going to just come up with my own answer really quickly. I would imagine they come up with something similar, and I will link to that in the show notes because they probably go more in-depth and talk with a bunch of people about it. But generally speaking, the reason that the Star Spangled Banner is considered hard to sing is because of the range of the song. So I'll break that down for you really quick and then play an example of one of the greatest performances of the Star Spangled Banner of all time. Um, So when I talk about the range of the song, it's that uh, it's you know it's the the distance between the lowest note in the song and the highest note. So if we do this song in C, the lowest note is going to be a low C, which is the root of the chord. Let's just hear that. So that bottom note that you heard there, that's a low C. That's the root of you know in the key of C. That's the lowest note. It's right there at the beginning. And a lot of times when you hear people sing this song, they'll be kind of like you know, down in the very bottom of their register because the lowest note comes at the beginning and they want to leave as much headroom as possible for the highest note, which in this case is a whole octave and a fifth above that. And uh, that you'll hear that on this note in the key of C. So even just there, you've got going from a low C to a G, an octave and a fifth above that. That's a pretty significant range. Um, there's also the fact that this song itself, the melody, does a lot of arpeggios. You know, it, it starts with an arpeggio, then it does another arpeggio really quickly after that. There's a lot of jumping around, so it, it um, you know, it requires a little bit more limberness in the vocals. And then, of course, there's also the fact that that high G returns um, in the kind of as the glory note. That's this big, long note that you're supposed to hold at the end of it, where you walk up a C major scale and you know you land on that G and just hold it, you know, very, very loudly and intensely. So the highest note in the tune is also the one that gets held the most intensely, which is challenging for any singer at the end of a song that was already pretty challenging to begin with. So then one more thing that really, you know, really good singers tend to do to increase the degree of difficulty even more is something that you've probably heard, you know, one of the sort of powerhouse vocalists do on this, which is they sing that part, the up to the G glory note, and then they jump up into their head voice. They go up another fourth to a high C, two octaves above where they began. Um, and uh, you'll you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I play you this clip. Uh, this is Jennifer Hudson performing at the 2009 Super Bowl, one of the great powerhouse vocalists of our era. Um, performing this and she does exactly what I'm talking about. Check it out. My goodness, she can sing. She's actually singing an A, so that was a high A that she hit there, and then she actually ended it on a full voice, you know, like a chest voice high E, which is no joke. Uh, that's very high as well. So anyways, that's a little bit of why uh, the Star Spangled Banner is considered a hard song to sing, because it is, basically. Our next question comes from Matthew, who asks, what is the Wilhelm scream of music? Is there a distinctive technique or a specific sample that's commonly used and is easy to spot once you know what to listen for? So this is a fun question. And for starters, I guess I should explain what the Wilhelm scream is. The Wilhelm scream is a scream that you'll hear in a lot of movies. And once you hear it, you kind of can't unhear it. It's sort of become a little bit of an inside joke for sound designers. It turns up just all over the place. There are a lot of good explainers. I'll find one and link it in the show notes. But the Wilhelm scream sounds like this. 
once you know what the Wilhelm scream is, you start to hear it kind of everywhere. And so what Matthew's question is, is is there something like that in music? And my answer would be, there's actually, there are a lot of things like that in music. Um, one good example, there is actually, speaking of Vox, there's a very good Vox video about this, um, breaking down where this came from. But the orchestra hit sound effect that um, there was like a sample that was played uh, throughout the 80s on a ton of tracks, it's played even today, is one of those. Um, here's an example from a Janet Jackson song, When I Think of You. Uh, so that sound effect turns up all over the place. Um, it's just a super common one. And there's a very good Vox explainer on sort of where it came from and where the original sample came from. That's really cool. I do think that's a good example of a sort of a Wilhelm scream because you'll hear it just constantly. And it's kind of an inside joke, you know, when a, a modern band like maybe Wolfpack or a band like that will use the orchestra hit really aggressively in a recording. They're kind of they're kind of joking. They're making a little reference. So there is another sort of a Wilhelm scream that I at least notice whenever I hear it in a song. And um, it's actually a harmonic thing and it's whenever a songwriter goes from a four minor chord to a one chord so that chord progression sounds like this now that was several chords but those last chords that was a four major to a four minor to one and that four minor to one it really just it's this very lush sound it's a very classic sound and it turns up in a couple of really famous pop songs um, most notably it turns up in the Beatles in my life right here so that song is an A and they go to the four chord which is D so it's D minor And then that resolves to one. So that I think is like maybe that song is the is the patient zero for the four minor resolving to one. Um, but then you'll hear it everywhere. It's in that really nice Death Cab for Cutie song. I will follow you into the dark. If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then I'll follow you into the dark. So that four minor happens at the end there. That's a really nice song. He plays with the capo up on the fifth fret, so he's playing an F, but he's fingering it like a C. And that four minor kind of ends that little turnaround, that, that chord progression that goes through the end of the chorus. Um, you can hear it at the very end. Um, I'll play it and sort of and spend a little extra time on that four minor so you can really hear what I'm talking about. That's the four minor, and that's the one. It's a really nice way to get back to one. It's a chord progression that I hear all over the place. It's not exactly the Wilhelm scream, but it is definitely something that I notice quite a bit when I'm listening to pop songs. Our next question comes in the form of a correction. This is from Andy on Twitter, who points out, on the last episode when I talked about Thriller, I discussed the uh, the electronic um, antenna-based instrument, the theremin, which was invented in the 1920s. Uh, the theremin plays a little bit on Thriller and was kind of known in horror movies. And I mentioned that the Beach Boys song, Good Vibrations, which itself is a very strong song that may actually feature on this show at some point, um, also used the theremin. Turns out I was wrong about that. It uses a derivative of the theremin called 
called the Tannerin. Now, the Tannerin was designed in the 1950s by a trombone player named Paul Tanner. This is outlined in a wonderful NPR article that I will link in the show notes. The Tannerin works somewhat like a theremin, but it's designed along a slide. There's a really cool picture of it in the article. So it's actually quite a bit different from the theremin, which you kind of conduct by holding your hands a certain distance from these antenna. And that's a cool way to play an instrument, but also sort of an imprecise one. The Tannerin works, you know, sort of like a trombone, and you slide what looks like a little knob along a slide, and you can pick specific notes, which gives the sound on good vibrations that sort of specific sound. So the Tannerin actually turned up in movies, you know, sci-fi movies, as well as the theremin. And the two instruments, though similar, and the Tannerin was inspired by the theremin, they are somewhat different. Let's just listen to a little clip from Good Vibrations so you can hear uh, Paul Tanner's Tannerin in action. I'm picking up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations I'm backing up good vibrations She's giving me We'll uh, save a deeper analysis of that fantastic song for a possible future episode of this podcast. But that is a fun little trivia note. So thanks, Andy, for sending that in. The next question comes from Christopher, who asks, why would you change the time signature in the middle of a song? What purpose does that serve? Uh, that's a that's a kind of a big question with a, with a lot of different answers. But changing the time signature in the middle of a song is a pretty dramatic thing to do. It isn't actually a super common thing that you see in a lot of popular music anyways. Um, it's something you'll see a lot more in orchestral music, um, in some jazz music, kind of advanced jazz groups nowadays tend to do, oh yeah, the bridge is in seven and the verse is in three or whatever, the A is in three. And, um, you know, tunes will do that kind of things. So it's a more common thing in jazz. But I, generally, the answer to this question is you do that because you want to dramatically change the feel of the song or throw the listener for a loop or change things up. One of my favorite examples of a really dramatic time shift is in a Dave Brubeck quartet tune called Blue Rondo a la Turk, which I would imagine some of you will know, if not by name, then by listening to it. listening to right now is actually in 9-8 time. That means that there are 9 eighth notes per bar, uh, which is a pretty unusual time signature. But you can hear it pretty clearly if you just listen. It's 1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-3-1-2-3-1-2-3-1-2-3-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-
And I think that juxtaposition works super well. So that's one example, kind of just an excuse for me to nerd out about Blue Rondo a la Turk. Uh, really great album, uh, Time Out by the Dave Brubeck Quartet, worth listening to. All of this stuff will be linked in the show notes, but that's a great one. We'll probably maybe talk about another very famous song from that album at some point. Um, it'll get its own episode on this show. Another famous example of this that's more pop-oriented is the Beatles' Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I think that's one that a lot of people know that song starts out in 3-4. Sounds like this. You can hear the time. It's like one, two, three, one, two, three. But then... Change to 4-4. Four, four. One, two, three, four. So that's another very dramatic change. I mean, the song just completely changes tones between the verse and the chorus, and the time signature change, I think, helps with that. It goes from this sort of dreamy, mysterious, out there thing to suddenly this anthemic, you know, everybody singing in harmony. The vocals change, the chords change, and the time signature also changes. So, Christopher, to answer your question, uh, that's usually what people are going for when they add a different time signature to a song. Our next question is actually somewhat related. This comes from listener Jane, who writes, My question is, I have read that Pink Floyd's song Money was composed in 7-4 time, and as a result, it's supposed to be difficult to sing. I'd like to understand why. Jane, you have heard correct. Money is in 7-4 time, though actually related to Christopher's question, Money switches time at one point. It switches time signatures. So it's in 7-4 for most of the song, though the guitar solo is actually kind of in 4 or 12-8, depending on how you want to feel it. Um, we don't have to get into that too much, but that is actually another song where they do the thing I was just talking about and they're in one time signature for the verse and actually for the chorus and then they actually switch the time signature to change the vibe of the song in that same way. So the 7-4 part of money is pretty easy to count actually once you know um, how to count it. Let's just listen to the basic groove on money. So the key to counting this song is counting to three and then counting to four. As a side note, I sort of enjoy that people have to figure out how to count money. <laughs> um, moving on. Uh, so really, yeah, it's just three and then four. Here, I'll count it along with the verse so that you can hear it. One, two, three, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, one, two, three, four. You try. And that's the gist of it, really. I would say that the key in general for being able to count odd time signatures is breaking them into their component parts that way. And money is actually a good, really basic exercise in that because the tune is nice and slow. And it's not, you know, in like 13-8 or 9-8, like that Dave Brubeck tune that we listened to earlier. It's a little easier to count. With the Brubeck tune, I was counting 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3, which if you add those up, that's 6 plus 3, you know, 3 groups of 2 plus 1 group of 3. Um, that's kind of fast, but that is actually a helpful way to try to hear it one two one two one two one two three instead of hearing one two three four five six seven eight nine which is just kind of hard to count with money it's the same idea you know one two three one two three four because three plus four is seven as to whether the time signature makes the song hard to sing i think that that it kind of does you know the notes aren't harder to hit or anything but the phrasing is just a little weird because there's this kind of missing beat i always like seven because eight you know would be two bars of four four you know that would be eight beats but seven is just missing this one beat so you get a normal bar and then you're missing a beat and so everything just feels a little bit like it's stumbling on itself and I think that if anything that's what makes the song a little
little difficult to sing is just some of the phrasing is just unusual. It's not really like the sort of vocal phrasing you hear on a song that's in normal, you know, ordinary 4-4 time. So that's probably the one challenge of this song. I would say if you're trying to sing it, start by learning the groove and learning the riff and really getting that in your head and then work on the lyrics and figuring out where, you know, where in the bar each note goes. Our next question comes from Russ, who writes in the song The Way by Fastball. There's a thing that happens at 50 seconds in. You'll know it when you hear it, but basically the mix changes. I've always been curious if there's a name for what's going on. First of all, I think the song is actually super underrated, The Way by Fastball. I think it's kind of a great song. It has a great melody and a cool chord progression. I've always sort of just really liked it and thought that it was an unusually good song. Um, And yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, Russ. Let's listen to the section in question, and then I'll sort of explain what's going on. So what is going on there is a very common and clever trick with the mix and the EQ, the equalization of the track that I think is pretty common in in a lot of different kinds of pop music. And it's where you kind of smush what you're listening to and make it sound really small so that when the full mix comes in, it sounds really big and like something happens. So you can hear that happen very dramatically on this track. They've sort of taken everything and they've panned it. The pans are whether things are in the left or the right channel. They've moved everything toward the center. They've used the equalizer to kind of cut off some of the frequencies and cut out some of the body to make it sound a little thinner. The lead vocals don't sound as full and everything is a little bit just smushed in this little box. And then that means that when the full stereo pan comes in and the left guitar part starts playing, you know, the arpeggios that he's playing, it sounds way, way bigger. So just listen to that really quick. Here it comes. I really like this technique because actually the regular mix of the song just sounds normal, but by making the first part sound really small, it makes the normal part sound really big, which is one of those relative things in music that I think uh, clever studio engineers can do really well. One of my favorite versions of this is on this um, the Queens of the Stone Age album, Songs for the Deaf. They do that a couple times on this album, but on the first full track, it's called You Think I Ain't Worth a Dollar, But I Feel Like a Millionaire. Um, they do it at the beginning. So I'm going to play that clip, and I will warn you that this rocks so hard it might kill you so fair warning check it out Oh man, that hits so hard. Um, that intro is really good. This album is incredible, by the way. Songs for the Deaf. Um, definitely going to be something from that featured on this show at some point. But that's a particularly dramatic example of the same thing that Fastball is doing on the way, which is making it little so that when you go full-sized, it sounds really, really big. The next question comes from Peter, who is wondering about the opening bar of John Lennon's song, Mind Games. He writes, does the initial chord come from a stringed instrument or is it feedback? I've always heard it as feedback or the tape being brought up to speed. It is an odd sound that opens this haunting and classic song. Well, Peter, I listened to this track and I think I know what it is. And it's actually interesting that you describe it as a tape being brought up to speed, because I think that if it is what I think it is, that that is an accurate description. Let's listen to the opening from John Lennon's Mind games.
Now, what I believe that is, that kind of dreamy instrument that sounds sort of like strings, and it does have a sort of a tape running quality to it, it's a, a keyboard instrument called the Mellotron, which is a super, super cool instrument that features on actually a lot of famous tunes. Uh, most famously, it also features on John Lennon's Strawberry Fields Forever at the very beginning, um, where they have a slightly different sound on it, but it sounds like this. Now, I could be wrong about the Mellotron being at the beginning of Mind Games, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And it's a really neat instrument because it's a keyboard, but it runs on tape. So the sound that it's making is this is spinning tape, like it's playing on tape, which gives it that kind of uh, analog tape quality that's this very dreamlike ambient sound. It's really, really cool. I, um, they're very, very expensive, Mellotrons are, especially a, a classic one, but it would be a really neat thing to, if not own, at least get to play around with. I actually found a really cool YouTube video where a guy is just demonstrating uh, a bunch of different Mellotron stuff and just playing one on camera and it's really fun to watch so I'll link that in the show notes but that's my answer like 90% on that that the sound at the beginning of the mind games is a Mellotron. Lindsay asks, what makes a James Bond song a Bond song? They are all different, but there is a common element that seems to run through them, and I can maybe identify it without knowing what I am hearing. I love this question because I've actually thought about this a lot, and I really like James Bond music, so it's a, it's, it'll be a fun one to talk about. So to get there, let's start just by listening to, let's listen to the theme from uh, Dr. No. This is uh, the James Bond theme composed by Monty Norman, and let's just listen to a little bit of it, and then we'll pick apart what makes a Bond song sound like a Bond song. So actually, I think that we have already hit one of the main things that makes Bond music sound like Bond music, and we haven't even gotten into the melody. Now, you know the melody, like everyone knows that melody, the brass comes in, sounds great. But actually, the the Bond sound, as I understand it, comes from that initial chord progression that you're hearing, which sounds like this. That, to me, is what defines the sort of Bond vibe, is that motion. So what's happening there is it's basically a pedal tone, is called, which is when the bass, in this case, just sits down there on that E. And then the fifth note, there's a fifth right up above it. This is a B in this case. You start on the fifth, and you, you play just the fifth, and then the fifth goes up a half step to a sharp five or a flat sixth, and then it goes up another half step to a natural sixth. And it moves between those three notes, and I think that... Those notes, like that motion of those intervals, is the thing that defines the sound of Bond. Um, let me show you what I'm talking about. Every Bond movie has a theme song. One of my favorite theme songs from any Bond movie is from the 2012 Bond movie Skyfall. This is performed and written by Adele Atkins, co-written by Paul Epworth. Really great tune. And it does something in the chorus that will sound familiar if you're thinking about that same motion of the root to the fifth to then the sharp five or flat six to the natural sixth. Uh, let's just listen to the chorus of Adele's Skyfall theme. I don't know if you hear it, but she's doing those exact notes. Listen, check it out. Falls, 
So that's just one example of like a cool little musical Easter egg, you know, a shout out to the original Bond theme. You'll hear it everywhere and not just in Bond music, but in any movie that's trying to give you a kind of a Bond sound, you'll just hear that same chord progression. Um, one good example is one of the ultimate sort of Bond tribute aping movies, uh, Kingsman, The Secret Service. Uh, Henry Jackman did the score to that. If you listen to the main theme of that, check it out, listen and see if you can pick out that little Bond chord progression happening in the middle of the main theme. you hear it? It's buried in there, but it's it's kind of paving the way for the chord progression that allows that theme to work. Um, let's listen one more time. I'll play along with it. You'll kind of hear it this time, I think. I have to admit, this is probably a subject for a different podcast, but I have a soft spot for the original Kingsman movie. Sue me. I know it has things about it that are stupid, but I just sort of like it. And I do like Henry Jackman's music. That movie is so over the top, and there are these parts that's really intense, and it's just building and building and building. And I'm impressed, if nothing else, by the way that the musical score is able to just one-up itself again and again and again as the stakes of a given scene get more and more ridiculous. So anyways, one more little thing that is a very James Bond-sounding chord, and it's just a single chord, it always happens at the end of the James Bond theme, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. And it's a guitar playing a minor nine chord with a major seven. It sounds like this. That guitar sound on its own, that sort of dark electric guitar, a little bit overdriven with a kind of tremolo running on the on the amplifier, is definitely also something that is is just sort of inextricably linked with James Bond thanks to this music but that chord specifically it's a it's a minor nine chord and then it has a major seventh so it sounds like this similar to the chord progression that we went over earlier uh, that that minor nine chord with a major seventh is definitely something that has become synonymous with spy movies and you'll hear all kinds of soundtracks that are aping the sound of James Bond going for that chord over and over and over again just because it's such a spy chord Our next question is also about movies. It comes from Jordan, who writes, I loved the movie Aquaman. It was big, goofy fun, dumb but aware of it, and basically fearless. There's a sound effect heard constantly in that movie whenever Aquaman does something awesome. It's this blazing guitar riff followed by some bass something. I love it. It's absurd. It's not quite a theme song, is it? Does it have a term? What other little riffs exist like that in cinematic music? Let's listen to the riff in question first. This is from the track Permission to Come Aboard from Rupert Gregson Williams' Aquaman soundtrack. Side note, uh, Rupert's brother, Harry Gregson Williams, is also a very well-known film scorer. So uh, two brothers, they're a family act. Uh, Let's listen to that clip and get ready for some extreme, exciting riffage. And nothing says Aquaman is here to mess stuff up like a drop tune guitar just dumping on you like that. Um, so I have not actually seen Aquaman yet. Not for lack of wanting to see it. I actually do want to see it. It sounds like it's it's a lot of fun, if kind of dumb. And um, that riff is pretty cool. Before we get into what that's called or, or what other movies do something like that, um, let's just figure out what it is because it's actually kind of cool what it is. So that is just a guitar, but it sounds kind of like meteor, right? I mean, check it out. <laughs> 
Now, granted, there's some kind of an effect on the guitar to make it sound even more kind of disgusting and heavy than than it otherwise would. But um, it's also because of the tuning of the guitar. So the normal tuning of a guitar, a guitar is tuned into E. And so that would mean the lowest note on the guitar, and I'll just play this on my guitar, the lowest note on a guitar is this. So, you know, pretty low, pretty rockin', rockin' enough. If we were to play in E, that, that riff in E, it would sound like this. Now, not that that didn't rock, that rock, thanks partly to the hilarious amp effect that Logic is doing on my guitar. That did rock, but it didn't quite have that stank that the Aquaman riff had. Let's listen to the Aquaman one again. Nasty, right? So the reason for that is that they have downtuned the guitar quite a bit. They're actually playing in drop C. So drop D tuning, a lot of people probably heard of on a guitar, and that's where you tune the lowest string down a step from E to a D. So you can kind of, if you're playing in D, you get more open chords and a slightly lower lowest string. Drop C is more common in metal, you know, in kind of really hard rock and metal. And that's when you drop not just the the bottom string down, but sometimes you also drop a lot of the strings down. So the whole thing is kind of tuned lower. What that means is that the guitar is kind of playing a little little lower than it's, you know, sort of intended to play. The strings are a lot looser, which causes them to vibrate, you know, at that lower frequency. And you get that kind of stanky low, just like dip deep sound. Um, so I detuned my guitar to drop C. Not something I do that often for the kind of music that I write, but I did it um, just for you guys. And uh, this is what the riff sounds like with me tuned into drop C. There it is. That's the stankiest that my 335 is capable of sounding like. Fairly stanky, I would say. As for the second part of Jordan's question, it's not exactly a theme song, right? You wouldn't call just like a little riff in drop C a theme song. Um, so what is the term for this and where does this turn up in, in other movies? Uh, I would say the term for this is a motif or a motif, um, depending on how you want to pronounce it, spelled M-O-T-I-F. This is something that's fairly common in musicals and in opera. Um, a light motif, it's called, uh, is sort of a, a little musical jingle or a, a collection of notes that's associated with a character. If you've seen the musical Hamilton, which we will certainly talk about on this show at some point. There are um, motifs for, I think, almost every major character. Uh, a lot of them have sort of melodies that play uh, when they turn up on stage or when they're singing or doing something. So this is that same idea just applied to superhero movie. Now, interestingly, another movie that does this is also in the DC universe, and that's Wonder Woman. Um, you probably know uh, Wonder Woman's motif, and uh, if you don't, this is what it sounds like. So that theme totally rips. That was written by Hans Zimmer and performed by Tina Guo, an amazing cellist who some of you may actually know from the video game Journey. Austin Wintory's score for that featured her heavily. She was the cello soloist in that, but she's played on a ton of stuff now. And she is the primary soloist uh, for the Wonder Woman theme. And that theme plays whenever Wonder Woman comes on and does something awesome. And I still remember in the absolutely dreadful movie Batman v Superman, Wonder Woman, of course, is already the highlight of that movie. When she turns up, the movie suddenly kind of comes to life for a minute. And also she's she's introduced with this killer musical theme that really just sounds distinct and not like anything else. I mean it's distorted, you know, cello through a 
through a big like stack guitar amp and it's not a sound you've heard before and where so much of the music in those movies especially in superhero movies can be kind of you know boring or it just sort of sounds like stuff you've heard before that stuck out immediately in the same way that Wonder Woman did so it was really perfect I think her music is actually remarkably good in a world where a lot of superhero music doesn't actually do very much for me so that's another example in the DC universe it, it seems clear that the composers who have worked across the DC movies are trying to do something with uh, assigning motifs to characters in a way that the Marvel movies are not and I actually think that's really cool I, I sort of wish that the Marvel movies would do a little bit more of that of, of specific assigning of melodies because it isn't like they don't have good composers writing music for Marvel movies it's just that uh, it doesn't seem to be a priority for them for some reason and that's always been something I've actually really liked about some of the DC un- uh, movies and that listening to that guitar riff actually makes me want to go see Aquaman even more. Russell asks, just a quick question for your Q&A, what is that weird, creaky noise in the background of Gimme Shelter? That's the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter that Russell is referring to, and what is that weird, creaky noise? Well, let's listen and see if we can hear what it is. So what is that sound? You hear it back there. It sounds kind of like a creaky door or like something being wound up, a little grinding sound. What that is, in fact, is a Latin American percussion instrument known as a guiro, which uh, many of you actually probably saw if you were in high school band. Uh, You may have had one of these in your band, uh, in your band room. It's sort of a wooden instrument. It's a long wood block. It's often actually cut to look like a fish. So a lot of times a guiro will look like a fish. So it's this hollow wooden tube, basically, with, with cut ridges across the top. And then you sort of brush a stick across the top of it. Actually, there isn't a good sample of it. And I don't own a guiro, unfortunately. I, I wish that I did and I may get one one day because it's a pretty cool sound. Um, You can find a lot of cool videos of people playing them on YouTube. Um, Performing on the weirdo goes way, way beyond just the kind of like that they're getting on this recording. That's very basic. You can do some pretty amazing things with the instrument if you know what you're doing. So I actually recommend going and looking around and finding people who are good at the instrument. But anyways, that's what that is. And uh, it's a cool sound to have on on a popular rock tune. And it does turn up from time to time. So you'll hear it in the background there sometimes. And uh, now you'll, you'll be able to notice it. Our last question for this debut Q&A episode comes from Austin, who asks, how do you think using live instruments for recording versus drum machine slash synth, etc., changes the texture of the song? What musical instrument sounds are more affected by going digital? This is a really good question, and I think it's one that a lot of um, composers and writers and home producers uh, wrestle with all the time. Um, it is easier now to create a full orchestra sound using samples and pre-recorded stuff, synthesizers, sort of, quote, fake unquote instruments than it ever has been yet there are definitely some instruments that are easier to fake than others and I I have my own thoughts on this I'm sure that a lot of composers you know and other people would have their own takes but my takes are as follows in general I think that solo stuff is a lot harder to do with artificial or sampled instruments than than sectional stuff and uh, the type of instrument makes a really big difference so for starters I think that mallet instruments are very easy to to sound real, to sound authentic if you use a sample. I think that's one of the reasons that you hear a lot of marimba music um, playing behind a lot of the podcasts that you listen to, because a lot of podcasts, the people who do music for podcasts, it tends to be a sort of a one-person operation, and they, you know, they maybe play guitar and bass, they play a lot of instruments, but they don't have a marimba, which is a very expensive mallet instrument lying around, but it's a really cool and kind of compelling and evocative instrument, and the samples of a marimba sound great, because it's just a mallet hitting a marimba key. 
It's actually similar to a sampled piano, which sampled piano can also sound very good because there just aren't that many different ways for the hammer to hit the string, you know, for the mallet to hit the key. So anything that's kind of percussive like that generally sounds pretty good. I think that um, sampled drums can sound okay, though a sampled drum set can start to get kind of weird unless you really know what you're doing to like put all the different parts together well. Um, I think sampled upright bass actually tends to sound very good, so I hear a lot of that when I'm listening to, you know, different recordings. Uh, string sections sound good. String soloists are much, much harder to do. Uh, even string sections can be difficult because the string is a kind of a more expressive instrument, and the more expressive a given note on an instrument can be, you know, the more room there is for stretching the note and bending the note and adding these sort of human elements to it, the harder it can be to make a sampled performance of it sound as good. Vocals are kind of a mix. I think that you can get a good choral sound if you have sort of the choral ooze in the background of an orchestral recording. That can sound pretty convincing. Um, a lot of video game soundtracks use those sorts of choirs. You know, they didn't go and actually hire a choir, which is a very expensive thing to do. And I always appreciate when, you know, Bungie, for example, on Destiny and Halo soundtracks, you can always hear that they went and got a real choir because you hear people breathing. You can hear the soloist. You can tell it's real humans. But a lot of video game soundtracks and other sort of sampled things with choirs, with the sort of whole solstice, like just choirs in the background, um, those are sampled and they're kind of hiding because there's no soloist because, again, the sectional stuff is a little bit easier than the solos. The hardest thing for me to fake, I think, and I don't think this is just because I'm a horn player, but I do think that it is horns. I think that wind instruments are very, very difficult to do convincingly using samples. Um, I The saxophone in particular is just really, really hard to do with a sample. And I think that that's because the saxophone is so close to the human voice and wind instruments in general are so related to our voice and our breath and we control them with our voice and they have this kind of, you know, similarity with a, with a solo voice. And that just does not come across if a human being isn't actually playing it. It's actually similar to the uncanny valley effect in sort of special effects and also in robotics, where if you create something that's almost human, it's sort of more uncanny to us than something that's totally not human sounding at all. Uh, it's the reason that when you hear uh, sort of uh, one of those robot voices, you know, your Siri or your Alexa sort of talking to you, it just does not quite sound like a person. And they would have to go so much farther than they do to make it sound like someone because it's a human's voice and we're just trained to innately understand that. I think the same thing actually kind of applies to wind instruments because those are so close to the human voice. Um, so let me let me close out with this example. Um, here is a little bit of a little bit of keyboard sax for your listening enjoyment. And now I'll play the same thing on an actual tenor saxophone and see if you can tell the difference. So, you know, I'm cheating, obviously, and saxophone is my main instrument. So uh, I just really wanted to make a point there. But I do think that wind instruments, you know, flute, trumpet, any brass instrument, woodwind, saxophone, clarinet, those instruments are all very hard to do. Clarinet's a little bit easier due to some sort of overtone-related stuff that I don't have to get into. But in general, if you are someone who writes music ever or you want to kind of find a way to make something that you've mostly recorded using samples sound are really good. One of the best ways to do it is to just get one real instrument in there. And especially if it's a, a woodwind or a horn instrument or a string instrument, some sort of soloist, putting one real voice in there among all the sampled notes can actually go quite a long way to making something sound um, much more fleshed out and sort of believable just because your ear hears that one real instrument and then uh, you kind of fill in the fill in the blanks with your imagination a little bit. 
So my last thought on this, and also I know you asked about synthesizers as well, and um, this sort of applies to that, is that, you know, whatever whatever the musicians are playing, whether they're playing synthesizers, you know, Stevie Wonder, a couple episodes ago, we talked about I Wish, he was playing the ARP synthesizer. Um, a drummer could be playing synth drums, you know, be playing non-real drums. Um, when it comes down to it, to me in the studio, and when it comes to recording, the most important thing is recording as many musicians playing together as possible. So that means, you know, whether whatever instrument they're playing, even if they're playing Playing, you know, everything is entirely sort of quote fake unquote. They, if they're sitting there in the room together and playing together, that's where the magic happens. That's the sound that you know that really works. And a lot of the best recordings are bands that all sat in a room together, turned on a bunch of microphones at once, and played together because that's you know where a lot of musical magic happens. A lot of it is in the production and the composition. You can make great recordings. You know, a lot of the recordings that we've talked about on this show have been recorded with the everybody recorded separately. It's totally possible. I've recorded albums that way. You can do stuff that sounds good, but there is a magic to just having musicians in the room together actually playing together because music in the end is something that we, I think that we make together. And so that also can make a significant uh, difference in the recording quality that you get. And that'll do it for our debut Strong Songs Q&A episode. I hope you liked it. I certainly had a good time doing it. If you submitted a question and I didn't have a chance to answer it, don't worry. I will probably find a way to answer it on a future Q&A episode. And if I don't have time to answer it, I'll find a way to email you or get back to you one way or another and, uh, and give you some sort of a response. If you would like to submit a question for a future Q&A episode, I welcome that. You can always tweet at me, at Kirk Hamilton, and that's K-I-R-K Hamilton, or you can email strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. I keep a big list of all of the questions I've been asked. We've got a bunch more cool ones that I haven't answered, so please uh, contribute to that. Send any of your questions, anything that you've been curious about, something in a song um, that you'd like me to try to figure out and tell you what it is. Uh, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. Thank you all so much for listening to the show and for continuing to spread the word. I'm having a great time and hope you are too. We will be back in two weeks with yet another strong song.